Did you hear the news? LifeFlow has been named one of the best accounting and finance software products for 2024 by G2. And because of the support of listeners like you, LifeFlow is also on G2's list of the 100 fastest growing products of 2024. If you're thinking about implementing LifeFlow with clients soon, there's even more good news. G2 also awarded LifeFlow as most implementable for winter 2024. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, LifeFlow, later in the episode. Ever wished you could earn CPE credits while on the go? Introducing Earmark, the app revolutionizing the way accountants earn their CPE. Just listen to your favorite accounting and tax podcasts, whether you're driving to work, working out, or even doing chores. After you're done listening, take a quick quiz. Score 70% or higher, you've earned your CPE. It's that easy. Plus, with Earmark, you're not just ticking a box. You're actually learning valuable insights from top accounting podcasts. So why wait? Download the Earmark app now on iOS or Android and transform your listening time into CPE credits. Make the most of your day and stay ahead with Earmark. So just to put this in perspective, SBF was once worth over $20 billion and was the number one most positive figure in the cryptocurrency industry. His company FTX was valued at over $32 billion at its peak and was one of the world's largest marketplaces for digital coins like Bitcoin and Ether. Amazing. And you know, so, so you said $32 billion. That was FTX was worth $32 billion and now it's worth zero. Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. We are recording on a Tuesday because I was in Maryland at the Maryland Society of Accounting and Tax Professionals Conference this uh, weekend talking about artificial intelligence. And I was going to give my standard AI talk, high level thought leadership kind of stuff. Where is everything going to be in 10, 20 years? And I decided at the last minute to completely change it. And it was fantastic. Why did you change it? I think you did a webinar you mentioned to yes. me earlier this week. So I did a webinar. Mind-blowing stat here. I did a webinar on Wednesday with Accounting Today and Avalara. And we had close to 300 accountants on the webinar. And we did a poll. And we asked, how many of you have actually signed up for ChatGPT or for Claude or for Bard and used it in any way? It was only 20%. Only 20%, one in five of the accountants on our webinar had actually tried generative AI. And that was a mind opener for me. I, I guess I thought it would be higher. And so I've been tailoring everything I do to assuming that people have actually used this technology. And I realized that they haven't. And so my goal in life now is just to get more people to try it, to get that number up to 80% of accountants, uh, because I use it every day. Right. And I find it to be completely life-changing. So that's what I did uh, at the presentation on Saturday at MSATP. I, I did maybe like 10 minutes of my slides. And then I just demonstrated generative AI, how you could actually use it in your practice today. And two of my favorite examples are analyzing PDFs, court cases, analyzing the tax code, pasting some tax code into Claude or into ChatGPT and asking it to interpret this for you to help you understand it, or providing specific cases and asking it to apply the code and see what it does. Uh, and then or just drafting emails and using text-to-speech to talk into Claude and to draft an email. So, uh, it, it, which saves me a ton of time. I don't write my emails anymore. So it was great. I think it, I think it got some people to sign up. But then I got back and I saw this, I saw this article in CPA journal that really made me angry because <laughs> it's doing the exact oh, opposite. <laughs> um, it's called, Can Artificial Intelligence Become an Accounting Expert? And what they did is, uh, here, I'm going to put this up on the screen here. So this is in CPA journal, which is, you know, a le legitimate publication, a journal similar to the Journal of Accountancy. Unlike those podcasters, unlike those podcasters. Exactly. They're not, they're not podcasters, right? It's a publication of the New York State Society of CPAs. Uh, and it's hard to get an article in here. It's got to get peer-reviewed, all that good stuff, right? So this is, you know, this is the profession. This is the CPA profession kind of journalism here. And, and so what they did was is they, they got a focus group together 
with expertise in the areas of auditing tax internal, auditing risk management, and forensic accounting to evaluate the responses of AI to professional queries. And here's where they really screwed up. They decided to use the Google-sponsored BARD system because it was more readily available to our team of professionals. ChatGPT requires an invitation. Our purpose was to assess the current state of the BARD LLM as an example of LLMs overall. So they used the worst generative AI. Because they didn't want to spend 20 bucks. Cause they, yeah, because they didn't want to spend 20 bucks. properly. Right. And this, is, this, exact, this reminds me of when Accounting Today did that article uh, where they gave, it, they gave ChatGPT CPA exam questions. And they found that it could not pass the CPA exam, but they used Using the old, the previous iteration. Yeah, 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 yeah. They used GPT three instead of GPT four, and then they put out this article, and it's like completely misleading. Why would you try to evaluate all LLMs and use the worst one, the one that or at people least joke about? Do them all and compare them side by side. Like, yeah. like do the research. And I don't know who did this research, who, who the authors were, but I'm assuming it's some in industry. And in the same vein that you're. The, the data you have, which is pretty much nobody in the accounting industry has touched AI yet in the grand scheme of- Yeah, 20%, 15, 20%. We, 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 we live in a bubble when we tax Twitter and people listen to our show and we've experimented with it. But in general, most people have not touched it. Yeah. So if this person, this is their first trying to try it out, you know, this right. is what we're going to get. Yeah. Um, I guess it's good they tried, but the, the people who are probably in our industry that are ahead on the AI game a little bit, you know, they're like, you know, four months ahead. <laughs> they should be doing these studies and, re- and writing these articles. So anyway, disappointing. I hope that they will repeat this with uh, Claude. I recommend Claude.ai for anything having to do with analyzing a PDF. You can upload a PDF to it. Uh, you can copy paste tax code into it. It accepts the largest PDF files and the most text. It can handle really, really, really large prompts. So it's great for doing analysis. And in my presentation, one of the things that we did that kind of blew some minds was we took section 179, which is about, you know, expensing stuff like your automobile, right? And we put the whole section 179 into Claude and we asked it questions. And it was accurate at analyzing that and answering our questions about it. According to the group that I was with, which was, I I was presenting to, you know, two dozen um, small group setting, two dozen tax people. So try that and then tell me what you think. Don't use BARD. Don't use the worst generative AI available. By the way, I think Google's in trouble because they have the worst generative AI. And I am quickly finding that I don't Google search anymore. I have completely switched to using Microsoft Bing chat for all of my searching. Wow. It's so much better than getting 10 or 20 or 30 results on a page and then having to click on each page. I can just do the search in Bing and it gets me what I, directly what I'm asking for and it cites multiple sources and I can click through on each sentence of the response to get to the source if I want to double check it. So it's like a full circle because yeah, what was great about Yahoo way back in the day that humans were compiling all the links. And humans would review all the links, and then it would, hey, these are the best ones, and those would be at the top of the Yahoo searches. Yes. Now we're like full circle, where now you're searching on Bing, you're getting a summary of the top sources, possibly summarized, but then the links to the actual sources. Like, it's full yeah. circle, with the pendulum is swung. Yeah, and you want to see an example of that. Like, for instance, I just searched in Bing... And by the way, if you want to access this, I think you have to do it through the Edge browser. So you download Microsoft Edge and you go to the chat option, which is on the search bar. And I did a search. I said, how much debt on commercial office buildings do United States banks hold on their balance sheets? Now, do you think that if I did a Google search, I would find an SEO optimized article with that answer? No. It would be very difficult to search for that, right? Well, Bing gave me an answer. It said, United States banks hold approximately $760 billion of office loans, which is roughly 35% of their commercial real estate debt. Citation. And I can click through. That's from Business Insider. According to TREP, $80 billion of these mortgages are set to expire this year, and about $400 billion will mature over the next five years. This is more than any other segment of commercial real estate. Multiple citations. So then I can click through to, you know, PitchBook, which has something here, and Business Insider, and I can go verify this. 
Like, how great is that? That's way better than doing a Google search. And something like yeah. a huge percentage of Google's revenue still comes from search. So if they can't figure this out, they're they're done. It is a risk. It is probably, it's yeah, huge I disruption. I mean, they're done from the size of what they are. I mean, they're still a massive organization with Google Workplace and all these other apps and stuff, but that's a small percentage of their revenue. Their market value is trash if they can't sort this out. So anyway, uh, one, one other thing I also searched for was taxation and Guinness beer because I went on a tour when I was in Maryland of the Guinness Brewery in Baltimore. Baltimore has the only Guinness Brewery in America. And it's brand new. It looks fantastic. If you're ever in the Baltimore area, I highly recommend you go stop by. They've got this massive beer garden. You can do tours. I don't actually recommend the tour because we didn't actually get to see much. But I would just go there and like hang out, go to the go to the gift shop, buy some swag, you know, drink the beer. Uh, it's just beautiful. And um, on our tour, which was too long and had too much information in it, though, I learned something about taxation. There's a deep connection between Guinness beer and tax. Like the, the style of Guinness beer, which is a stout, it's because of taxes, David. Really? Porter was first brewed in Ireland in 1776. Arthur Guinness, the founder of the Guinness Brewery, did not start brewing until 1787. And he had phased out all of the types of beer from his Guinness brewery by 1799. So he was only brewing porter. But Guinness today is known for stouts. So how did they switch? Well, he switched from porter to stout when he realized that he would pay less tax if he used unmalted and roasted barley in his beer. And that is why Guinness Stout is the is the beer that they it's export. The flavor and the beer and the protein yeah. exist yeah. all over the world. And there was, an, there was another uh, tax situation where, and this is why Guinness uh, expanded beyond Ireland. So previously to, let's see, it was 1777. So this was before they switched to stouts. So I'm, now we're going back to the closer to the beginning. England imposed higher taxes on Irish porters than English porters to encourage the exportation of English porter to Ireland. Very, you know, discriminatory. It's based on what we're doing with... Uh electric cars and electric battery incentives with the Inflation Reduction Act. We're, yeah, we're you, doing the same thing. We're, yeah, yeah. Or, or like for us, yeah, taxing, putting high tariffs on Chinese goods, right? Yeah. I guess it would go the other way, though, because they were exporting to Ireland, right? But same same concept, right? You tax, yeah. you tax it less, and so then it encourages more consumption. So that was good for England, right? And But then um, Guinness lobbied Parliament and got them to, re to eliminate that. So now it made sense to export Irish porter to England. So it was two tax situations that really changed the course of Guinness. It was getting rid of that tax on Irish porter. And then it was switching to stout because it was less taxes too. So any other highlights from this trip to Baltimore? I think that was it. I didn't get to go to the Naval Academy. I wanted to do that. Uh, I'll have to do that next time. Uh, Maryland is beautiful, by the way. I'm sure like this time of the year, leaves are changing. It was 68 Probably. degrees, leaves were changing. We went out to the bay. It was just, it was great. So I can kind of pivot from there for a tax story, if okay. you want. Okay, let's do so, it. And it's a follow-up story too. I think it was last week we talked about how there was a study in, with the IRS data and it showed that people are moving to states with less taxes, right? Yeah, yeah, we, we talked we about data. that, yeah. Well, now we have really good data on that. So Jeff Bezos is now going to leave the state of Washington and leave Seattle for Miami. Well, isn't this just the natural life cycle of somebody who's wealthy is, you know, <laughs> just to get to Miami. What? So apparently that is his original hometown, you know, and his it parents recently, I had no idea. His parents recently returned to Miami as well. And he wants to be closer to them. And then possibly, you know, Blue Origin, his, his little rocket ship company is, they launch from Cape Canaveral or whatever. So he wants to be close to that. But coincidentally, Washington recently introduced a 7% tax on the sale of financial assets. And since 2022, he sold some $30 billion or something in, front, in, in uh, some crazy number in financial assets. So he's probably looking for a little bit more tax-friendly place to live. You know, how yeah, convenient. I wouldn't. And, it's maybe, and I'm assuming his parents probably have some sort of Amazon stocks gifted to them through, you know, trust and 
whatever things that I don't have access to, you know, rich people do. But yeah, so he's like, this is perfect proof of this. He's moving to Florida probably because he doesn't want to pay capital gains tax. There's no capital gains in Florida. Makes sense. And he, well, he has, he has a giant yacht too, right? Wouldn't it be easier to keep it in Florida and sail that around from there? That's possible too. He just bought two properties too. Apparently there's a billionaire's island mm-hmm. right, that he bought a house there for $78 million. Yeah. So yeah, he, he's all in now in Miami. Plus, you know, he's been work pumping out. He's buff yeah. now. He's got no, his d- Hollywood girlfriend. Like, Bezos is living it up. Bezos inspires me. You know, like I want to, I want to get fit like him in, in my forties. And, uh, you know, like good for, good for him. Look at, look at how much value he has created. Something like an insane percentage of Americans are now Amazon prime subscribers. And like, like I see these trucks going around my neighborhood all day long, like delivering packages. Oh, another crazy stat. Um, just random. That's sort of related. Uh, I was hanging out with my brother. He came down from New York to come to Baltimore to, to meet up. We had dinner, you know, and, and he, he lives in Manhattan. Did you know that? Something like two or three million packages are delivered in New York City every day. How many? Three million? Two or three million. Wow. So it's like, like, think about the population of a place like New York, which is, I don't know what it is now, like, it's over 10, it's 12 million, 14 million, I think, or maybe it's more than that. But it's basically every single person in New York getting a package like once a week, you know, or two, one or two packages about, every week. I don't know. I'd probably get one once a week you yeah. get a package delivered. Yeah. That makes sense. That's amazing. Uh, Welcome everyone who has joined us in the live stream. A reminder for our podcast listeners that you can subscribe to the Accounting Podcast on YouTube and you can join us live. You'll get notified when we go live. Eric says, guys, I'm a Canadian CPA looking to move to the US. My entire training is doing something called reorganizations, where we restructure organizations to take advantages related to hold companies and trusts. Is this something that exists in the US? Corporate restructuring for owner managers? If anyone in the in the chat has an answer for that, do help out Eric. We need more CPAs here in the US. I saw a stat yesterday that I posted on Twitter that is just shocking. Ohio, the Ohio Society did a survey of their members and they found that of Ohio's registered CPAs, over 45% are 60 years or older. Over 45% are 60 years or older, and nearly two-thirds are over the age of 50. So only one-third of CPAs in Ohio are under the age of 50 years old. They create a five-point action plan to address the pipeline, right? Um, yeah. And like number one is forming a coalition and telling the accountant's story, reviewing and revising curriculum, enhancing the work experience. But the one that was interesting is they, and, and, and the words they chose is what makes it interesting to me. Establishing multiple pathways. Accounting careers need to be more accessible to a broader audience, and there needs to be a change in how young professionals and untapped talent make their way into the accounting profession. Both involve removing outed or unnecessarily onerous barriers. Now, they're not saying get rid of 150 or modify 150, but they're actually saying it. Yeah, yeah, right, without saying 150. So is this the next state that's going to introduce legislation or announce changes? I mean, is that going to be the next one? I th- what else are they going to do? Two thirds of CPAs are over the age of fifty in Ohio. Like that's, you know, they got to do something. It's just not competitive. I don't know. I, so, like you said, the first few points of that plan sound exactly like the AICPA's pipeline initiative yeah. or whatever they call it. And AICPA has a committee that they've established that reported to the AICPA council in October. We have been asking AICPA to provide us with somebody to talk to, to talk to our listeners, to to report on what that committee has done so far. And as of yet, we have been unable to get AICPA to book anyone on this show. And the invitation still stands. If you are listening, we would love to have somebody from that committee come on the show and give an update to our listeners. Um, well, we're going to digital CPA, so there's our opportunity yeah, but that's yeah, not until December, speed. you know? That's true. And so anyway, this <laughs> well, committee- How much is going to get done? How much are they gonna, this committee going to get done between now and December? Bro? I don't know. They're not getting anything done. Well, like, and their the final- going to be the same. Their final report is not even due until council comes back in May. And then the question is like, what, what are they going to be the takeaways from that, right? I mean, it takes an entire year just to get a committee to make some recommendations. 
I don't think we have a year. Like if we go at that pace, right, it's going to be like when I was at a mid-sized accounting firm and it took them eight months to turn on Microsoft Teams for me when that was in beta. Like at that pace of change, you're never going to make anything happen in the firm, right? Same thing with, with this, this talent shortage. Like if, if this takes 10 years to even start making something happen, there's not going to be like all, it's going to be two thirds of CPAs are over the age of 70 is what's going to end up happening, <laughs> you know? Maybe that's, how come that's not in the plan? They're just not going to let, they're going to keep people alive and not let them retire. Like maybe that's the, the plan. I don't know. Let them ever retire. Should, should we go back to talking about rich people? We can. I just want to thank our other live stream viewers. Mohammed said AI cannot replace accounting jobs since analyzing and presentation needs human review. I would actually agree with that statement in principle. And I have found that in my own work, AI has not replaced me. It has simply made me more effective. And I'm doing less of the writing kind of work and I'm doing more of the review kind of work. So I would say in general, but but there are accounting jobs where you don't do any review. You're just prepping. And if you're just prepping and doing data entry, I think AI will probably replace a lot of that. Uh, so you'll either need to like learn how to use that tool or you will be out the door. And I'm, I'm thinking especially in like big corporations where there's lots of like accounts payable processing jobs, right? All those people that are like just processing invoices all day long, like AI is going to be able to do that really well. This episode of the Accounting Podcast is sponsored by LiveFlow. If you're really a busybody, your title would read CPB, a Certified Public Busybody. You're a CFO, a controller, a CPA, and yet you burn so much time on the busy work compiling reports, stuck in the land of CPB. Well, LiveFlow's mission is to get you out of there. It's the fastest way to connect your QuickBooks Online to Google Sheets. It's designed to eliminate your extra busy work by automating and scaling your client reporting with live hourly updates. Once you cross the border, some strange and wonderful things start to happen. You stop exporting reports from QBO. You no longer customize your sheets over and over again. Your central nervous system forgets what it feels like to deal with stale data and you enter a state of nirvana. For your one-way ticket out of CPB land and 20% off your first three months, head over to accountingpodcast.promo slash liveflow. That is accountingpodcast.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. Welcome back to CPA land. Anyway, David, you wanted to get back to... I mean, we have we have, we have Trump. We got Adam Newman in from WeWork. We got uh, Sam Bakeman-Fried with FTX. Yes. <laughs> so a lot of rich dudes in the news. Okay. Questionable uh, rich dudes. Well, let's, let's do SBF because that's an easy one, right? Um, okay. Sam Bankman-Fried was found guilty of a ton of stuff. I don't remember exactly how many years he could get, but I think it's over 100. He could get over 100 years in jail for the, S, uh, for the FTX fraud. And I sure hope he does. Do you have any more details on that? No, I mean, I just... I'm amazed at the speed. It went from, basically this happened a year ago. This all collapsed, right? Yeah. And 12 months later, the whole thing's wrapped up like a, in a perfect package and it's done. And considering how long it takes trials and court proceedings and discovery and, you know, grand jury, like how, th this must be, is so blatant. Yeah. Uh, like This might've been the easiest case ever for any prosecuting attorney ever. To your point, the jury only deliberated for four hours. It was a month-long trial, and the jury went in for half a day and found him guilty of seven counts. So just to put this in perspective, SBF was once worth over $20 billion and was the number one most positive figure in the cryptocurrency industry. His company, FTX, was valued at over $32 billion at its peak and was one of the world's largest marketplaces for digital coins like Bitcoin and Ether. And you know, so, so you said thirty-two billion dollars. That was FTX was worth thirty-two billion dollars, and now it's worth zero. <laughs> and now it's worthless. I think we can top that. Yeah. Well, we so work. We work. We work went bankrupt. They were at one time in twenty nineteen valued at forty-seven billion. Man. You know, we were uh, we were calling out WeWork a long time ago. I don't remember how. I I remember. I specifically remember being at ZeroCon in San Diego. And, you know, they bring in the press and an out, an, um, analyst. And this guy, I don't know if he worked for Zero or if he was an analyst. And then he, but he, you know, the analyst, they analyze lots of companies, just not one. Yeah. 
focused on. And we got in a discussion at dinner about WeWork. And my, I was under the stance of like, it's like a bubble. Cause I, I, but my, my opinion was it's very disruptible. Mm-hmm. There's nothing special about it. Like, like what if Starbucks offered like, hey, we're going to put in monitors on some of the tables in Starbucks. It's a WeWork now, <laughs> essentially. Right. It's very, dis- and, and, and Starbucks offered a membership to where you had to pay extra to get faster internet or something. I don't know. It's very disruptible. So for, I've always been like short on WeWork since yeah. day one, not from an invest. I don't have any, no real, just a, an opinion short, I guess. And so it, it's completely ha- uh, happened. They've completely declared bankruptcy this Monday and uh, chapter 11 and in New Jersey federal court. Well, so the- I remember when we talked about this, I said, Here's the problem with their business model. They sign these long-term leases for yeah. entire floors or entire buildings, and then they turn those into short-term leases where as long as they have those short-term leases, they're making good money because they can you know, charge $500 for a little tiny square. But if they have any problems with occupancy, they're stuck in these long-term leases. So any recession, you know, any COVID Anything like that. This was, I think we were talking about this before the pandemic, right? Yeah. I think yeah. we've talked about this a lot in the past. And it happened. And we were right. Yes. Yeah. Again. Again. <laughs> you're right about, you're right about crypto as well, maybe. I want to go back and find a clip. Anyway, so WeWorks had this dramatic um, rise and fall to where they were about to IPO. They, I think they had a crazy valuation. They wanted to IPO at $43 billion. And, and now they've completely pulled back. They're not going to IPO. Capitalist free market system relies on financial statements, and they worked in this case, right? People realize that you cannot run a real estate company with operating expenses twice your revenue and go public and and expect people to invest money at this insane valuation. So we're not right that often, David. So I feel like we should celebrate our our presence. Yeah. So so they so they have seven hundred and seventy seven locations around the world. In millions of square footage. Yeah. So what's going to uh, happen uh, to all that uh, square footage? Leases. Um, and essentially, they currently, they have uh, reported liabilities ranging between $10 billion to $50 billion. I don't know why it's a range. Like, does somebody not know how much they actually owe at this point? <laughs> I thought that was kind of strange. Um, and the, uh, the CEO and co-founder, Adam, is it Newman? Newman. Newman. Adam Newman. He said it was uh, disappointing that this occurred. He said it's been a challenging for him to watch from the sidelines since 2019 as WeWork has failed to take advantage of a product that is more relevant today than ever before. <laughs> that guy's delusional. And he go- he enriched himself too at the expense of his shareholders with all the self-dealing. Yeah. It's incredible. And I'll, I'll, talk, I'll have some of those numbers. And he said, I believe that with the right strategy and team, a reorganization will enable WeWork to emerge successfully. Now, I've seen this where founders come back and rebuy the company after it's bankrupt. He could totally like, he, do he that. Might have, he, he, he could have some plan to do that. But I have some of the money, how he... Uh, so when he stepped down from the CEO in September of 2019, this is when the whole going public thing completely, the wheels fell off the ship. And that was right after that ZeroCon, because um, that's when everybody's talking about them going public right around then. Mm-hmm. Um, he basically, from uh, SoftBank paid him for his shares his remaining stake, $480 million. Negotiated down from what was supposed to be a billion dollars he was yeah. supposed to get. But then he filed a lawsuit. So he still got another 185 when he agreed to do a non-compete <laughs> agreement. And they got another $106 million as part of the settlement. So basically he walked out just, just in the SPAC process. He walked out with $770 million of cash. And he's a billionaire now, right? Yes. Like I- and Apparently, he, he's had about another $722 million, uh, value of WeWork in 2021, but in theory, all that's value is zero now. But he's a billionaire, yes. Yeah. So he extracted well. a billion dollars as WeWork went up, and then it collapsed. SBF should have learned something from Adam Newman, right? The entertaining part of this story to me is you have an Israeli, that because SoftBank is all the Saudis' money. Through See, Japan, though, right? SoftBank through, is through through SoftBank in Japan, yeah. right? It's the it's a Saudi royal family, and so to me, I see a story of like here here's an Israeli who figure out how to take money from the Saudi royal family and bring it oh, back to Israel. Oh man, I never even thought of that. That's even more devious. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> he should watch his back. Well, we know what happens to people who piss off the Saudis. But then you know he has his new thing. Uh, 
that coin he's selling that's called, is it Flow or something like Float? And then it's um, tied to, he's basically building WeWork apartments now. <laughs> and he got a $300 million investment. That, that, that company's now valued at a billion dollars. Like he's doing the whole thing over again. This is genius. Oh my gosh. <laughs> these, these guys are. He's like a cult he leader. He's more of a genius because he's not going to jail. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Any other rich guys and stories you have? Well, I mean, we got the Trump trial updates. So the last time we talked about it, it was his accountant on the stand and it was his CFO on the stand. Now it was the Trumps themselves took the stand. Eric Trump, Trump Jr. and Trump Sr. All on the stand. Trump Sr. just yesterday on Monday, November 6th. So I'm trying to read through this testimony and summarize it for you. Well, the headlines, and, like, it's funny because some of the headlines were like, blame accountants. It's the accountant's fault. And that's what kind of. Yeah, that's the a, one. A lot of that verbiage. Yeah, that's the one that um, caught my attention. Trump's sons cast the blame for fraud on their company's accountants. That was the New York Times headline. And I think that's actually, I mean, fairly accurate. There's a really good quote from Trump Jr., Asked whether he knew anything about the industry standard generally accepted accounting principles beyond what he had learned in college, Mr. Trump Jr. said, no, that's what I have CPAs for. He added, these people had an incredibly intimate knowledge and I relied on them. Asked whether he worked on one of the statements of financial condition from 2017, Mr. Trump was clear, quote, I did not. The accountants worked on it. That's what we pay them for. Eric Trump said when he was presented with internal Trump organization communications in which he discussed the value of certain key assets, quote, I didn't know anything about it until this case came to fruition. Uh, here's, here's Donald Trump and again. That makes sense, right? He's never looked at it. He's never paid attention. And then it's in the court, this, this comes to court or becomes a case. And now he's asking about these financials. He's probably truly never looked at it. I believe that. Well, I mean, that's irresponsible. I, I just find it hard to believe that like the two guys running the organization didn't weren't Apparently, yeah they were more you know, of the day-to-day guys they, they, they were so yeah. trump jr said he testified that he had no recollection of how the asset valuations used in the financial statements were prepared by the company's accountants at mazars usa llp despite documents displayed at trial showing he personally signed off on them quote i relied upon mazars and our accounting team to tell me that's why we have accountants but earlier in the trial, Mazar's accountant Donald Bender testified he relied on the Trump organization to provide accurate valuation data and that he wouldn't have signed off on the financial statements if he had known they were inflated. Bender said under the terms of the contract with Trump, Mazar's wasn't required to verify the appraisals, which is true and is something that none of these articles dug into. The fact, as we have reported on this show, David, that Mazar's was engaged to do a compilation. And in a compilation, you do not verify the numbers. You don't check the valuations. You're just taking the information provided to you by the client and you're presenting them in the correct format. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Relay. Between Blake and myself, we now have three, four, or maybe five business entities, 20 or so checking accounts, and dozens and dozens of virtual cards. It would be impossible to manage all of this if we weren't using Relay as our small business bank. Relay is truly a part of the tech stack we use to run our businesses. Relay allows Blake and I to each have our own logins, we can grant access to our team, and even our accountant without sharing passwords or two-factor authentication codes. Relay allows us to grow and scale our banking needs without ever going into a physical branch. I recently added an account to receive inbound merchant services with just a few clicks. And I had to create a payroll checking account. Again, just a few clicks, and I instantly had access to my ACH info to give to my payroll provider. With Relay's virtual cards, we can issue debit cards to our team around the world for needed business expenses. I can instantly spin up a new Visa debit card and set both daily and monthly spending limits. And when a team member doesn't need their card, I can freeze it until they need to use it again. To learn more about using Relay in your firm and with your clients, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Relay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash R-E-L-A-Y. Shouldn't the AICPA be coming up with a statement and defending Mazars and explaining that? And getting into the news cycle here. <laughs> That's a fun idea, David. I think we should pitch that to their PR team. I think I think well, it, I think everybody wants to stay out of the news when it comes to this issue. 
But if you, if it's like, oh, look, the ICPA is defending me. Well, now I'm going to pay my membership dues. I don't think that I don't think accounting firms should be doing this kind of engagement. I think this is yeah. this is this is like something that is total bullshit. It confuses the public. Nobody understands. They It's very similar to the acetation reports for the crypto companies. Yeah. If somebody right. wants to make financial statements, like we don't need compilation engagements anymore because anyone can go use accounting software to make financial statements. Like the the Trump it's good AI use case. AI could do this. Yeah. <laughs> this is this to me is very similar to those, you know, um like a compilation done poorly is just as useless as a uh, uh, what are those crypto companies getting the attestation the reports? Yeah. reports. Yeah, because they provide no assurance, but they mislead people because the accounting firm's logo is on the you know exploit the brand. Yeah, exactly. So it creates no value. So it's unethical, I think, to even do this sort of engagement. If you ask me, uh, because what what's going to happen to those financial statements? They're going to get used by you know banks. You want to touch on? I can touch on the uh, the eighty billion IRS funds and how it's been whittled down to now almost in half with the latest actions. Well, I want to get to that, but we didn't talk okay. about Trump's actual testimony yet. All right, he was on. Oh, the stand. sorry, sorry, sorry. He yeah, was sorry. on the stand yesterday. No, no, no worries. So apparently, it was very contentious, and like I don't know. I mean, just I'm just trying to think. Like, why would you want to piss off the judge? You know, by like basically calling the whole thing a sham and a fraud. Like, like you're literally in case, you're in court. There's no jury. It's just a judge sitting there. And you're literally saying, like, this is a witch hunt. In He's the, always campaigning. He's always campaigning. That's his thing. I know. But, like, to, you know, it's one thing to do it on social media outside of court, right? It's another thing to do it to the judge's face. Like, I don't, I don't understand. I guess he doesn't care if he loses. I don't know. So, you know, the prosecutors are trying to pin down Trump and his sons, the Trump family, for the inaccuracies or the, you know, the inflated valuations. And Trump said actually something very intelligent. He did something that I liked on the stand, which is uh, he said when asked about the the valuations and the, you know, the inflated valuations as the prosecutors are alleging, um, the question from the state attorney, Kevin Wallace, was, did you ever think that the values were off in your statement of financial condition? And Trump said, yes, on occasion, both high and low, which is smart, right? Because this is this is where the the leeway is in all of this. Is valuation is extremely subjective. What is the value of that building on Fifty First Street in New York City? It's whatever a willing buyer is willing to pay for it. So you don't know what the value is until you put it on the market and you sell it. So valuing something that's not on the market especially something that is very unique, is extremely difficult. And you can come up with extremely wide you know, variations in value. And that's the defense, I think, that would work the best for Trump, is basically say like, well, and he said this on the stand, to paraphrase, like, I'm a real estate expert. I know what these values are better than the appraisers. So who's to say that he can't say that a property's worth this and put it on the balance sheet and give that to a bank? And this is where I, I, I'm, I, I still wonder what the crime is, because let's go back to, and, and I'm sure millions of people do this. You're filling out, you know, you're, you're getting a credit card for the first time. You kind of- Oh, they you ask you, take yeah, what's your, what's your income? Your income. And you yeah. put a little bit more. Everybody does it, right? It's the exact same thing. It's the exact, like, it's the exact same crime. And so I just don't, it, it just feels like they're, a lot of people are getting their hopes up, like, oh, they got him this time. Yeah, I don't think and they... I yeah. don't know if there's a crime there. I don't think... Like, that's that's in the end. I don't know if there's a crime. So put this in contrast with our SBF fraud case. Open yeah. shut, right? This is on yeah. the opposite end of the spectrum, in my opinion. I don't care what you think about Donald Trump, if you think he's a horrible person or if you think he's the Lord and Savior, okay? This is just... Looking at the facts, I think it's going to be challenging for Letitia James to win this case, even though the judge has already ruled there was fraud, the question is how much? That's what's going to determine the fines. And on appeal, I could see a lot of this just getting thrown completely out. Yeah. So because it's 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 yeah. just like when you go to get your house appraised, you have a guy come in, you don't like the appraisal he did, you go hire a different guy, you use that appraisal when you're it's kind of the same the same game here. Yeah. You you, you get the person to give you the number you want. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. And it's hard for anyone to say, no, that number's wrong because everybody has an opinion and you can always find somebody who will sell you a better opinion or the opinion you want. 
I mean, that's the problem with audit, right? Is like, if you don't like what your auditor says, you can just go find another auditor. Most of the time, there's enough auditors out there looking for work and are willing to lowball on fees and, you know, skimp on the due diligence. Same thing with these banks too. Like the reason that the banks didn't do the due diligence is because they really wanted the deals because they could make a lot of money. And bankers are incentivized to, to make deals. And I don't think that the person who makes the deal with Trump is not going to be personally held accountable if something goes sour like 10 years later or six years later. They might not even work for that bank anymore. So they don't have an incentive to do the due diligence. They just have to get it past the risk management team. Like, yeah, because they're, they're, th- that person's the broker or whatever. This, basically the sales guy, Based right? on the loan, the sales guy. Yeah. Like, he has to worry about it if he never pays the loan back. That's a whole different division. Exactly. Yeah, right. It's just, it's picture. just, so they're all doing the, they're all doing this game. It's all this dance, right? Same thing that happened in the mortgage crisis, like same kind of stuff where it's the system is set up to reward unethical behavior. And so everybody does it. Not everybody. Some people don't, but those people don't win because they don't bend the rules. Speaking of being rewarded for unethical behavior, uh, did you see what happened when uh, CPA Ontario fined Deloitte and why they fined them? I love this story, David. Tell us. Tell us about how the Deloitte auditors in Canada backdated work papers. Apparently, there's software to do the audit work. It's Deloitte's internal audit software. And it has a date and time it captures from your computer date and time. And they figured out if they change the date and time of their computer to older dates, they can make the work papers have whatever date they want. So, so originally, you could just change, you could, you could make the sign-off date on a work paper, whatever you wanted. But that was apparently a problem. So they changed it so that you couldn't do that anymore. But you could get around it by just changing your computer clock in the settings. Yeah. And so over this, during this time period between November of 2016 and May of 2018, over 930 audit working papers were backdated for at least 39 different audit engagements. But that's actually like, okay, this should piss people off and upset people. But really when I read this, what was most upsetting is the ridiculous fine they had to pay. So Deloitte's revenue for 2023, I don't know if we talked about on the show or not, $65 billion dollars. The fine for this action, one point five nine million. One point five so nine million. Pers- let's put this in um, numbers that maybe listeners can understand. So, for somebody that, assuming my math is correct, I'm not going to claim correct <laughs> math on the show, but someone making about a hundred thousand dollars in income, it would be like finding them two dollars and forty six cents. Okay, so their global. What was their revenue? Sixty five billion dollars globally. Globally, Deloitte. Deloitte. Okay. Do you know what Canada, because they're all under Deloitte, right? But they're all separate firms. This is the thing that's interesting about large accounting firms is they're all separate entities that share the same brand and a governance structure. But like, so what, do you know what it is for CPA Canada or for Deloitte Canada? For Deloitte Ontario, I guess it would be or something. I don't know. Okay. It it, it doesn't matter. They they probably have billions. It's it's a joke. It is a complete joke of a fine. Right. No, I get it. Right. So, so yeah, because if you take 65 billion and the portion of like 1 million, yeah, it's like tiny, 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 tiny little fine. Let's see. Deloitte Canada, Bing is telling me that it was like 4 billion. Looks like four billion about. So, yeah, if you find somebody like a million and they have four billion of revenue, <laughs> and then uh, yeah. yeah, it's just. It's, but okay, it's, so it's, so the fine is this is and this is something we see all the time is that the fines are little hand slaps. Sounds like a lot of money, but it's not. So they keep doing it because and so it, our our governing boards of our industry, right? This is CPA Ontario. We have the PCOB. These fines for audit mistakes and audit fraud, arguably this is fraud, right? There's no fines for it. Like, like we, we just allow accountants to commit fraud when they're the ones supposed to be finding the frauds. Like, this is <laughs> yeah. crazy. You wonder why we have trouble attracting young people into a profession where unethical behavior is systematically incentivized. And studies show, I actually have an article here about how Gen Z's really, really want to work for companies that are big on environmental, social, and governance stuff. They want to work for companies that make the world a better place. 
And here you go into like a staff auditor role at Deloitte in Canada, and you encounter a system where you're cheating regularly. And your job is supposed to be to hold other companies accountable. And, and arguably the profession that in theory should have the most ethical, in theory, Accounting is supposed to be the most ethical profession. Oh, we talk about it all the time. Yeah. We, we talk From about a marketing perspective, we talk about we a big game. That. We're we're the trusted advisor. You know, we we are the guardians of the financial markets. Everybody without audits, how would anyone know to trust the numbers? It's shameful. Okay. And and I just want to call out that number you said. Nine hundred thirty audit working papers were backdated in at least thirty nine audit engagements. Now, why do you backdate? You backdate because you didn't do the homework, you issued the audit opinion because you needed to get it done on time, and then you go back and you make up the homework later. So, All right. Thank you for explaining it that way. Uh, it's even worse. It, it actually, yeah. yeah. And usually so, so you don't do it until you- A fake audit. Yeah. yeah. And arguably these are fake audits because they didn't actually do the work yeah. until after the fact. I, I would argue that many audits are fake audits. That like- the audit opinion is already bought and sold and purchased by the client, and then it's the job of the auditor to go and make it look like they did the the work. So, so, so basically, the, our conclusion here of these couple stories is there's nothing there's nothing different between an audit and an appraisal. <laughs> well, if you hire, it depends who you hire. If you hire okay. an unethical appraiser, they'll just give you the number you want, and if you hire an unethical auditor, you will get the audit opinion you want. And there's not really an effective system to stop the unethical auditors and appraisers. And I just want to make it clear that I'm not saying that all auditors are unethical. There are many, many ethical auditors, and there are many, many ethical appraisers. But when you have a system where the unethical people thrive... And there's make, no penalty. There's no penalty. Well, yeah, the penalty... As, as Daniel said in the chat, tis a flesh wound. <laughs> it's true. So what are they going to do? Are they going to stop doing this now? No. Because it'll cost them money. They're going to keep doing it. Maybe not this specific thing, but it'll be something else, right? The, the cheating will continue. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Keeper. By combining client communications, file review, reporting, and your task management, Keeper has everything you need to run your bookkeeping or task practice. Keeper is an all-in-one app that allows you, your team, and your clients to easily collaborate to make your monthly close as efficient as possible. Starting with a beautiful custom-branded client portal optimized for bookkeeping work, your client can answer questions you have about uncategorized transactions, allowing you to categorize and automatically post them to QuickBooks Online correctly, all without ever leaving Keeper. Via the month-end file review feature to surface transactions that may not be posted correctly, and by providing the perfect customized report that each client may need, Keeper can highlight the value that your firm provides clients. Keeper's built-in task management ensures nothing falls through the cracks, and it includes time tracking so you can see where you and your team spends their time. With Keeper's 1099 manager, you can easily review each client's list of vendors, email address, physical address, tax ID, and the amount paid, and from the same screen, even request W9s for any vendors that you're missing information for. No more jumping between screens or browser tabs. Keeper has a very affordable and clear pricing model that starts at only $8 a month. To learn more about why thousands of bookkeepers and accountants trust Keeper to manage their month-end close and to get 20% off your first three months by using code CAP20, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash keeper. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash K-E-E-P-E-R. Okay, the one we didn't cover yet was the uh, uh, IRS budget getting cut. Yeah, so, you know, it's less than a year ago, right? When was the the Inflation Reduction Act passed? Oh, God, don't Around quiz me on this. But th so that, that act contained the extra $80 billion for 80 the billion. IRS over 10 years. And we had all the headlines about 27,000 armed IRS agents. Yes. That, was a fun that was a fun time. So then somehow like 1.4 billion was stripped out of it. Then they renegotiated it. Um, another 10 billion for 2024, another 10 billion taken out of it for 2025. And now the latest thing to pass the house is they're stripping another 14.3 billion away and they've tied it into military um, assistance for Israel. I don't so think they, this they, is a good strategy. 
sorry. I, and this before, is the first. This is the first proposal from the Republicans with the new House Speaker uh, Mike yeah. Johnson, and it already passed. The House passed the aid package two twenty six to nine one ninety six on Thursday. And Biden said he's going to veto it. Well, he's not going to have to veto it because it won't get through the Senate. Yeah, but I, I well, okay. So my gut is saying this is not like a great strategy for Republicans because, like the. I understand there's a big chunk of the Republican base that is anti-war these days. And that was Trump who did that. But there's also a big chunk of the Republican Party that is like hawkish still. So you're splitting your party again by doing this. Yeah. By holding up military aid, for especially for Israel. Like Ukraine, I could see them doing that and being successful in Ukraine because Americans care less about that. I think yeah. polls show that like they're less engaged in that. But like Israel, I was looking at polls on this and like there's really strong support for Israel in America still. Very strong. And it was like two thirds. I don't remember the exact question. I don't want to say it, but um, it's it's like very high. So it's like, why would you go, why would you tie cutting IRS funding to Gaza military support? Republicans in Congress so are really screwing up, if you ask me. So within 12 months or so, give and take a few months, that 80 billion is now 44.3 billion. And this is just within a year. Like what happened? Are they going to, every little piece of legislation is going to keep having some provision in it? To, to cut the funding? The funds away? Like well, this is zero? And let's think about this. Like the strategy of cutting funding to the IRS, is that really a great strategy as well? Like I understand there's a part of the base that thinks there should be no IRS. And so it's a popular thing to defund the IRS, Right. But also you defund the, like the IRS is, is like hobbling along, like barely functioning. And at a certain point, there's a cost to that. Well, they actually have a number. So the Congressional Budget Office forecast, well, this would cost the federal government $27 billion in revenue due to tax, tax cheaters. Mitt Romney, there's a quote from Mitt Romney recently on this that I think summarizes the you know, traditional Republican Party view on this. He said, too often over the last decade, the IRS has been used for political means. This legislation will prevent the IRS from targeting Americans because of their presumed political religion. Uh, that's not it. I used AI to search for the quote, and I, I didn't. Oh, it failed. It, it failed. See, it takes human. You still need humans. <laughs> AI couldn't do this podcast. Anyway, there was a quote from Mitt Romney. I wish I had it, but he basically says like, Something like, you know, generally, if you cut funding for the IRS, you don't increase tax revenues or something like that. You know, it's like not a good idea. I don't know. This whole episode is just a bunch of head shakes. <laughs> for those of you not are not watching the video, yes, I've been shaking my head just back and forth a lot in this episode. Here's a, a, what else, something else going on in the world is NASBA CEO Ken Bishop plans to retire, as reported by Accounting Today. I saw that. And I was going to text you. I said, Blake, there's a job opening if you'd uh, like to pursue. Um, well, maybe I'll put my hat in the ring. Does somebody want to nominate me? There is going to be a selection advisory committee representing NASBA's eight regions. The committee is seeking a visionary leader with strong financial and business acumen, executive decision-making abilities, dynamic public speaking skills, and an understanding of the accounting profession and its regulation. You got to make a pitch video, put it up in your LinkedIn, and we'll share it around on social media. Like like a political campaign. That's, well, I would say, uh, I don't know if I would, I, I'm not sure this is a job. It pays a million bucks, Blake. It pays a million bucks a year. Yeah, that's the crazy part. People don't realize this. Like, so NASBA's Ken Bishop, is that what they, did they say that the next person's going to get that? Made over a million dollars oh. a year running NASBA. And and um, Barry Melanson makes like over $2 million a year, I believe, running AICPA. It's a lot of money. And the crazy thing people don't realize too is like Ken Bishop wasn't even a CPA. He had a career in law enforcement. A lot of the people running the associations are not CPAs. I always wonder why that so maybe is. Maybe I should run. Maybe I should try to become president. <laughs> maybe it's a better idea. Yeah. Uh, here's some other follow-up. BDO became an employee stock ownership company. They, they formed an ESOP. Yep. That was a big deal. We had a great interview with Wayne Burson, CEO of BDO, uh, on the show. Go watch, listen to that episode. You'll understand the rationale. I think eventually every accounting firm will be employee-owned. 
and the partner model will slowly die away. New York accounting firm Grassy announced an ESOP. They're a top 100 firm based in New York, and they are doing the alternative practice structure where you take the audit, which still has to be in many states, a partnership structure, and you just carve that out into its own entity, and then you put everything else into a corporate entity that is the ESOP. You create the employee ownership and the trust or whatever, and then you like lease employees to the audit firm. It's basically just a, a workaround to get around the, the the rules around audit firms. Yeah. So I think we're going to see more and more of these top 100 firms do this because how else do you attract talent, you know, that doesn't want to stick around for 10 to 15 years to become partner? And like we saw, they're just really desperate for talent. Like in Ohio, two-thirds of accountants over the age of 50. 45% over the age of 60. Nuts. Yeah, the employee, in a way, the employees are that are going into accounting, the new hires, they not it's not so much they can negotiate. It's just they have so much more choice and they're going to pick the better value. Yeah. And, and it, BDO, it's a hard argument not to say, if you're going to go work for a top 10 firm, not to go to work for BDO now. Because like you're guaranteed two and a half years in, if everything burns out and you just quit accounting, you're going to have a little something to show for it, <laughs> at least if you go to BDO. You got some equity. With the other firms. Right? Yeah. Yeah. A teeny bit to show. Expensify closed their Expensify Lounge, David. Really? Yeah. Remember? Oh, no. Remember six months ago, Expensify set up this really beautiful bar in their San Francisco headquarters, and they said anybody who's like an Expensify accounting partner, employees can go there and just like drink for free and hang out and have a great time, and it looked beautiful. And they actually brought like a recreation of it to one of the conferences we went to last year. Like, uh, was it Digital CPA? A where they scaled did that? version. It was at QuickBooks Connect. QuickBooks they bring, Connect. They, they built an identical replica of their bar and they brought yeah. it to a conference. Well, six months later, it's shutting down. Uh, it's closing. Oh, it already closed on November 1st. And there was an article featuring David Barrett, Expensify CEO in Fortune, saying that the push for employees to return to the office is a losing battle, even with free drinks as an incentive. They could not get people to come into San Francisco to go to the office. And Barrett says that companies insisting on a return to the office should reconsider as the concept of work from anywhere has become the new norm. He believes that no amount of coercion will work in the long run and that businesses insisting on a return to the office are fighting a losing war. However, he also noted that the lounge experiment provided other benefits such as testing new products and impressing potential clients. So speaking of expensifying, I, I don't even have the article because it, it got lost in the shuffle from two, three weeks ago, but Expensify announced, so they have the new Expensify app. Mm -hmm. They're now going to let you do personal expense reports in there. So if, that, if that's the best way to explain it. So you and I, Blake, we go well, they even, as They as really friends, get, rid of, they as, get rid of the expense report concept. It's just send money back and forth. Exactly, right? We can split a bill. So you yeah. and I, let's, let's, we're on, we can use Expensify and we're going to go have a meal that's not a business expense. Yeah. Now we can split the cost on that. You can pay me. We can send money back and forth. Um, and, and the argument is, well, if you already have this expense app on your phone, why go get another app to pay the other people at the table? You can split it through that. Um, it's, I don't, some part of me though, my brain, like, I don't know if I want, like we, we go out of our ways as accountants so much to tell people, separate your business and your personal finances. <laughs> so, so over here, we've finally got people to use a bank like Relay to get a business checking account yeah. and, and use that for their business. Yeah. And then over here, now you're like, oh, by the way, here's this expense app and you can use it for your personal stuff too. I don't know. It seems, it, it, it's, it, it mixes the message, I think, to clients. And, and at the end of the day, even myself, I don't want my personal stuff. It, it, I feel like that's noise in the way of my business stuff. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, I think what's that's, your take? That's like, what's your take on a personal app like that? My take on a personal app? Well, I mean... It all goes back to like Expensify's vision, which we've talked about before. Yeah. Um, I want to be like like Venmo, essentially, or like handle everybody, all money movement around the world. And it's so like you have to do the personal stuff if you want to do that. So I'm thinking like, you know, I'm using Venmo, you know, kids are in sports at school and there's parent groups and you're sending money back and forth through Venmo all the time. And then I've, I'm going to say mess, but yeah, we have a mess, you know, I'm using Expensify. We got all these things. Oh. Blake sent me things to approve. I'm sending things to Blake to approve. All I need is that all to be in the same feed. Yeah, I <laughs> guess I could see that being an issue. Well, 
all of these apps are actually not that complicated. It's all the execution. It's like, what is the user yeah. experience? That's why Expensify yeah. won with expense reports like years ago. And yeah. like, we're just going to see if that works again for the new version. Can they do it twice? Yeah. Or can, yeah, there's got to be an easy way like a view. I guess in my brain, I'm like, I don't want the mess, but expensive. I could figure out a way to make it so it doesn't feel like a mess. But maybe they can. We'll find out. Interesting announcement by them. Um, I've got a video to close out. If you don't mind, David, I think this would be fun. Before you play the video, though, I want to make sure I don't forget to tell everybody we'll be at QuickBooks Connect on Sunday, and Sunday night you can come see us. We are going to be at the Ignition Precon Party at QuickBooks Connect 2023. It is Sunday, November twelfth, seven p.m. Pacific time. It's at the Alexis Alexa's Las Vegas. I think that's inside Paris. I think right? you're right. It's right on the street. It's right out there on the strip. With two X's patio bar. With two X's. Um, in the show notes. So if you, sh- you open up your show notes, there's a link. You can register. It's a free event. Come and say hi to us in person. You know, it's just like the live stream, but it'll be in person. We'll have drinks and celebrate the QuickBooks community. That's awesome. HK Geek says, "See you Sunday. We'll see you there." That's great. Awesome. Thanks everyone who joined us. Uh, really appreciate you coming in on the live stream. I've got an Instagram reel that I want to finish things out with. This just popped up in my feed. Uh, and I was really excited to see an accountant talking about being a CPA and how much money they make. And I think you'll like this too. But but then there's a surprise at the end, David. So stay, um, stick to the end of this. You'll see what I mean. So the question is, how much do you make as a CPA? How's it going, man? What's your name? My name is Michael. Michael, I'm Charles. Nice to meet you, brother. Pleasure to meet you, brother. What do you do for a living? I'm a CPA. CPA? How many years? About three. That's awesome, man. How much do you make as a CPA? I'd say all in, salary, bonus, buck 20, buck 30. That's awesome. Only three years in. Yeah. That's amazing, man. What would you say was the number one barrier to reaching your level of success? Finding good people to work for, man. Yeah. It's a tough industry. Accounting is tough. Yeah. So you got to find the right people to work with, man. Who besides yourself has played a major part in your success? My best friends. You got to surround yourself with top-notch people, man. You can't be around clowns. Simple but short, but that's straight up. That's real. Last question for you, brother. What advice would you give to people looking to get it into being a CPA? Don't become a CPA. Like that, huh? Straight up. <laughs> appreciate your time, brother. Oh, yeah, man. I see, that's awesome. I've seen you guys' page. Oh, yeah. Appreciate you, my man. How much do you make? After... Don't become a CPA. After that great video, he's talking about... It's great tips. He talks about his salary. He talks about tips for being successful. And then the point of advice is don't become a CPA. That is from Charles Jr. Walker on Instagram. And can I see how many views it has? Why can't I see? I've seen another video similar to that where it's in New York City around Central Park and, you know, randomly interviewing people. And a guy's walking and I think he's half exercising. He's got his ear pods in. You know, he's doing a little exercise. And the guy didn't even stop for the interview. Like, what do you do? He's like, I'm CPA. And they asked him, like, if you enjoy life, he's, no, I hate it. And he just kept walking. Like, he didn't even do the Yeah, interview. I saw that one too. Yeah, just, this is a problem. Just kept going. All right. Well, I got so much more. I wish we could, I could go for another hour, David, but we'll have to save it for next time. Thanks everyone for joining us. Hope you are having a great week so far and uh, do subscribe to us on YouTube. And don't forget, you can earn continuing professional education to renew your CPA license, maybe to reactivate your CPA license. If you're a CMA, it works as well. We also have enrolled agents. They use the Earmark app, and they get CPE for listening to this show and many others, such as Oh My Fraud, Federal Tax Updates, the unofficial QuickBooks Accountants Podcast. You can get your entire CPE requirement done, uh, probably except for that state-specific ethics course, on Earmark. And you can do it for free every single week. And if you want to support us, you can subscribe and get unlimited access. So uh, do download the Earmark app on iOS or on Android. Search Earmark or go to earmarkcpe.com and you'll find us. And David, we just got the trademark on Earmark. I'm very happy with it. And and based on uh, the data this week, course completions are really skyrocketing because everybody has to get all their courses done before the end of the year. So it's CPE season. This is an easy way (laughs) to... uh, to, to get them. And here's the best part. And I, I pitched this as a joke to Blake yesterday, but like we could have our own on-site conference where you get to pick any place in the world to travel and you could use your Mark app to get CPE. You can go anywhere you want. You don't have to come to one location for a conference to get your CPE. You can build your own vacation. We'll have a, so it's like a virtual conference, but the attendees travel somewhere. Yes. And then they join the virtual conference from wherever they're at. 
I wonder. Well, there's they don't even have to attend anything. They just use yeah. the app and get CPE. Well, so my question to our listeners is, if we did something like that, could our listeners, our attendees to the conference get a tax deduction still? Because that's one of the big reasons that people go to these all day long CPEs uh, in, you know, other, there's one coming up at the Four Seasons in Orlando that people are going to. Oh, and, so this is a gimmick. It's what you're telling me. It's a tax deduction gimmick. Well, maybe this is the theme of our episode, but I feel like a lot of the stuff we talked about is, you know, uh, yeah, exactly. I, I, I mean, you got to get your CPE. Why not get a, a write-off? You know, why not take it as a business expense and take your family to Disney World at the same time, right? That's what's happening here, obviously. And the firm pays for it. We could geofence the app where it only works at certain locations <laughs> to prove that they were there. Yeah, that's the question. The question is, how do we get people to how do we get people to benefit of taking a trip the and earmark? We have to solve this. We'll figure it out. You know, we figured GPT will help it, us. Our listeners helped us. It was our listeners who inspired us to create earmark so they could earn CPE for listening to podcasts. So now we just have to figure out with our listeners who are experts. Not we're, we're not tax experts. Our listeners will tell us how do we get the deduction for the uh, travel for our listeners as well. Well, buying earmark if you pay for the unlimited yeah that 130 bucks is 100 deductible it's business expense right should be yeah just like any other cpe product if you ask me i'm not a tax advisor david's advice is not tax advice consult your cpa we have to put a whole disclaimer yeah. on this episode now i know david great talking to you thanks everyone for joining us we'll see you again soon Time for the classifieds. Stop settling for slow payments and say hello to the future of AR with Forwardly. Accounts that use Forwardly can receive payments in less than 22 seconds. Yes, under 22 seconds via the newly launched FedNow network. And if your bank or a client's bank doesn't yet use FedNow, Forwardly will send the payment via same-day ACH for free. To get paid in under 22 seconds, go to forwardly.com. That's forwardly.com. Most firm owners are busier than they want to be because they feel like they have to work long hours to keep their firms running. But according to CPA Ryan Lozanis, that's not necessary. Ryan built a multi-seven-figure firm that didn't require him to work nights or weekends. And just five years after starting his firm, Ryan sold it to a major international organization for a hefty profit. His secret is a special six-part system. And right now he's teaching 700 plus busy firm owners to implement this system in their own firms so they can scale revenue and spend more time with family and friends. To learn more about Ryan's special six-part system that lets firm owners grow their revenue and their free time, go to futurefirmaccelerate.com slash CAP. That's futurefirmaccelerate.com slash CAP. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.